Gregor's serious injury, from which he suffered for over a month, since no one had the nerve to remove the apple, it stayed lodged in his flesh as a visible memento, apparently reminded even the father that Gregor, despite his now dismal and disgusting shape, was a member of the family and couldn't be treated like an enemy. Instead, familial obligations dictated that they swallow their repulsion and endure, simply endure. Now Gregor's injury may have cost him some mobility, no doubt for good, impelling him to take long, long minutes to shuffle across his room like an old war invalid. There was no question of his creeping up the walls. 
Still, this worsening of his condition was, to his mind, more than made up for by the fact that every evening the parlour door, which he would watch sharply for one or two hours in advance, was opened, so that he, lying in the darkness of his room and invisible from the parlour, was allowed to see the entire family at the illuminated table, and, by general consent, as it were, listen to their talks, rather, that is, than eavesdropping as before. Of course, these were no longer the lively exchanges of earlier days, which Gregor had always somewhat wistfully mused about in the tiny hotel rooms whenever he had wearily collapsed into the damp bedding. Now the evenings were usually very hushed. The father would doze off in his armchair shortly after supper. The mother and the sister would urge one another to keep still. The mother, hunched way over beneath the light, would be sewing fine lingerie for a fashion boutique. The sister, having found a job as sales girl, was studying shorthand and French every evening in hopes of perhaps eventually obtaining a better position. Sometimes the father would wake up and, as if unaware that he had been sleeping, would say to the mother, "'How long you've been sewing again today?' and doze off again while mother and sister smiled wearily at each other. In a kind of obstinacy, the father refused to take off his attendant's uniform at home and while his robe dangled uselessly on the clothes-hook, he would slumber in his chair fully dressed, as if always on duty and at his superior's beck and call even here. And so, despite all the painstaking efforts of mother and sister, the uniform, which had not been brand new in the first place, grew less and less tidy, and Gregor would often spend entire evenings gazing at this soiled and spotted garment which shone with its always polished gold buttons while the old man slept a very uncomfortable and yet peaceful sleep. The instant the clock struck ten, the mother, by speaking softly to the father, tried to awaken him and talk him into going to bed, for, after all, this was no way to get proper sleep, which the father, who had to start work at six a.m., badly needed. But with the obstinacy that had gotten hold of him upon his becoming a bank attendant, he would always insist on remaining at the table a bit longer, even though he invariably nodded out, and, moreover, could then be coaxed only with the greatest difficulty to trade the chair for the bed. No matter how much the mother and the sister cajoled and gently admonished him, he would shake his head slowly for a quarter of an hour, keeping his eyes shut and refusing to stand up. The mother would tug at his sleeve, whispering honeyed words into his ear, and the sister would leave her homework to help the mother. But none of this had any effect on the father. He would merely sink deeper into his chair. It was only when the women lifted him under his armpits that he would open his eyes, glance to and fro between mother and sister, and say, "'What a life! This is my rest in my old days!' and supporting himself on the two women, he would ponderously struggle to his feet, as if being the greatest burden on himself, let the two women steer him to the door, wave them off upon arriving, and trudge on unaided, while the mother hastily discarded her sewing and the daughter her pen in order to run after him and continue being helpful. Who in this overworked and exhausted family had time to look after Gregor any more than was absolutely necessary. The household was reduced further, the maid was now dismissed after all, and a gigantic bony charwoman with white hair fluttering around her head would come every morning and evening to do the heaviest chores. Everything else was taken care of by the mother, along with her great amount of needlework. It even happened that various items of family jewellery, which mother and sister had once blissfully sported at celebrations and festivities, were now being sold off, as Gregor learned in the evenings from the general discussions of the prices they had obtained. Their greatest persistent complaint, though, was that since they could hit on no way of moving Gregor, they could not give up this apartment, which was much too large for their present circumstances. Gregor, however, realized it was not just their consideration for him that held them back, for they could have easily transported him in a suitable crate with a couple of air-holes in it. The main obstacle to the family's relocation was their utter despair 
and their sense of being struck by a misfortune like no one else among their friends and relatives. Whatever the world demands of poor people, they carried out to an extreme. The father fetched breakfast for the minor bank tellers. The mother sacrificed herself to underwear for strangers. The sister, ordered around by customers, ran back and forth behind the counter. But those were the limits of the family's strength. And the injury in Gregor's back started hurting again whenever mother and sister, having returned from getting the father to bed, ignored their work as they huddled together cheek to cheek. And the mother, pointing toward Gregor's room, now said, Close that door, Greta so that Gregor was back in the dark, while the women in the next room mingled their tears or peered dry-eyed at the table. Gregor spent his nights and days almost entirely without sleep. Occasionally he decided that the next time the door opened he would take over the family's affairs as in the past. Now, after a long absence, the director and the office manager reappeared in his thoughts the clerks and the trainees, the dim-witted errand boy, two or three friends from other companies, a chambermaid in a provincial hotel, a dear, fleeting memory, a milliner's cashier whom he had courted earnestly but too slowly, they all reappeared, mingling with strangers or forgotten people. Yet rather than helping him and his family, they were all unapproachable, and he was glad when they dwindled away. At other moments he was in no mood to worry about his family. He was filled with sheer rage at being poorly looked after. And although unable to picture anything that might tempt his appetite, he did try to devise ways of getting into the pantry and, while not hungry, taking what was ultimately his due. No longer paying any heed to what might be a special treat for Gregor, the sister, before hurrying off to work in the morning and after lunch, would use her foot to shove some random food into Gregor's room. Then, in the evening, indifferent as to whether the food had been merely tasted or, most often the case, left entirely untouched, she would sweep it out with a swing of the broom. She would now tidy up the room in the evening, and she couldn't have done it any faster. Grimy streaks lined the walls. Knots of dust and filth littered the floor. In the beginning, when the sister arrived, Gregor would station himself in such particularly offensive corners as if to chide her. But he could have waited there for weeks on end, without her making any improvement. She certainly saw the dirt as clearly as he did. But she had simply made up her mind to leave it there. Nevertheless, with a touchiness that, aside from being quite novel for her, had actually seized hold of the entire family, she made sure that this tidying up remained her bailiwick. Once the mother had subjected Gregor's room to a major cleansing, which had required several buckets of water. The great dampness, of course, made Gregor ill, and afterwards he sprawled on the settee, embittered and immobile. But the mother's punishment was not long in coming. For that evening, the instant the sister noticed the change in Gregor's room, she ran, deeply offended, into the parlour, and even though the mother raised her hands beseechingly, the sister had a crying fit. The father was, naturally, startled out of his armchair, and both parents gaped, at first in helpless astonishment, until they too started in. The father upbraided the mother, on his right, for not leaving the cleaning to the sister, and he yelled at the sister, on his left, warning her that she would never again be allowed to clean Gregor's room. The mother tried to drag the father, who was beside himself with rage, into the bedroom. The sister, quaking with sobs, kept hammering the table with her little fists, and Gregor hissed loudly in his fury, because no one thought of closing his door to shield him from this spectacle and commotion. But even if the sister, exhausted from her work at the shop, was fed up with looking after Gregor as before, by no means did the mother have to step in to keep Gregor from being neglected. For now the charwoman was here. This old widow who, with the help of her strong bone structure, must have managed to overcome the worst things in her long life, felt no actual repugnance toward Gregor. While not really snooping, 
She had once happened to open the door to his room, and, at the sight of Gregor, who, completely caught off guard, began scrambling every which way even though no one was chasing him, she had halted in astonishment with her hands folded on her abdomen. Since then she had never failed to quickly open the door a crack every morning and evening and peep in on him. Initially she would even summon him with phrases that she must have considered friendly, like, "'Come on over, you old dung-beetle,' or, "'Just look at the old dung-beetle.' But Gregor refused to respond to such overtures. He stayed motionless in his place, as though the door had not been opened. If only they had ordered this charwoman to clean his room daily, instead of letting her gratuitously disturb him whenever the mood struck her. Early one morning, when a violent rain, perhaps a sign of the coming spring, was pelting against the window-panes, the charwoman launched into her phrases again. Gregor felt so bitterly provoked that he charged toward her as if to attack, albeit slowly and feebly. But the charwoman, undaunted, merely heaved up a chair by the door and stood there with her mouth wide open, obviously intending to close it only when the chair in her hand smashed down into Gregor's back. "'So that's as far as you're going?' she asked when he shifted away, and she calmly returned the chair to the corner. Gregor was now eating next to nothing. It was only when he happened to pass the food left for him that he would playfully take a morsel into his mouth, keep it in for hours and hours, and then, usually, spit it out again. At first he thought that his anguish about the condition of his room was what kept him from eating, but he very soon came to terms with those very changes. The family had gotten used to storing things here that could not be put anywhere else, and now there were many such items here, for they had rented out one room of the apartment to three boarders. These earnest gentlemen, all three had full beards, as Gregor once ascertained through the crack of the door, were sticklers for order, not only in their room, but also, since they were lodging here, throughout the apartment, especially the kitchen. They could not endure useless, much less dirty, refuse. Moreover, they had largely brought in their own household goods. For this reason many of the family's belongings had become superfluous. But while they had no prospects of selling them, they did not want to throw them out either. All these items wound up in Gregor's room, as did the ash-bucket and the garbage-can from the kitchen. If anything was unusable at the moment, the charwoman, who was always in a mad rush, would simply toss it into Gregor's room. Luckily, he mostly saw only the object in question and the hand that held it. She may have intended to come for these things in her own good time, or dump them all out in one fell swoop, but instead they remained wherever they happened to land, unless Gregor twisted his way through the clutter, making it shift. At first he had no choice, there being nowhere else for him to crawl, but later on it got to be more and more fun, even if, dead tired and mournful after such treks, he would lie unstirring for hours on end. Since the boarders sometimes also ate their supper at home in the common parlour, the door between that room and Gregor's would remain shut on those evenings. But Gregor easily did without the open door. After all, there had been evenings when he had not even taken advantage of it. Instead, unnoticed by the family, he had crouched in the darkest nook of his room. Once, however, the charwoman had left the parlour door ajar and it remained ajar even when the boarders came in that evening and the light was turned on. Settling down at the head of the table, where the father, the mother, and Gregor had eaten in earlier times, they unfolded their napkins and took hold of their knives and forks. Instantly the mother appeared in the kitchen doorway with a platter of meat, and right behind her the sister with a heaping platter of potatoes. The steaming food gave off thick fumes. The platters were set down in front of the boarders, who bent over them as if to test the food before eating it. And, indeed, the man sitting in the middle, and apparently looked up to as an authority by the two others, cut up a piece of meat on the platter, clearly in order to determine whether it was tender enough or should perhaps be sent back to the kitchen. He was satisfied, and so mother and sister, who had been watching in suspense, began to smile with sighs of relief. The family itself ate in the kitchen. 
Nevertheless, before heading there, the father would stop off in the parlour, bowing once with his cap in his hand, and circle the table. The boarders would all rise and mumble something into their beards. Then, by themselves again, they would eat in almost total silence. It struck Gregor as bizarre that amid all the various and sundry noises of eating, he kept making out the noise of their chewing, as if he were being shown that one needed teeth for eating and that one could accomplish nothing with even the most wonderful toothless jaws. I do have an appetite, Gregor told himself, but not for these foods. How well these boarders eat, and I'm starving to death. That very evening, Gregor could not recall hearing it all this time, the sound of the violin came from the kitchen. The boarders had already finished their supper. The middle one had pulled out a newspaper, giving the other two one page each, and now they were leaning back, reading and smoking. When the violin began to play, the boarders pricked up their ears, got to their feet, and tiptoed over to the vestibule doorway, crowding into it and remaining there. They must have been overheard from the kitchen, for the father called, "'Do you gentlemen mind the violin? We can stop it immediately.' "'Quite the contrary,' said the middle gentleman. "'Would the young lady care to come and play in this room, which is far more convenient and comfortable?' "'Oh, thank you,' called the father, as if he were the violinist." The gentleman came back into the parlour and waited. Soon the father arrived with the music-stand, the mother with the sheet-music, and the sister with the violin. The sister calmly prepared everything for the playing, the parents having never rented out rooms before, which was why they were being so overly courteous to the boarders, didn't dare sit in their own chairs. The father leaned against the door, slipping his right hand between two buttons of his buttoned-up uniform jacket. The mother, however, was offered a chair by one gentleman, and, leaving it where he happened to place it, she sat off to the side, in a corner. The sister began to play. The father and the mother, on either side, closely followed the motions of her hands. Gregor, drawn to the playing, had ventured a bit further out, so that his head was already sticking into the parlour. He was hardly aware of his recent lack of consideration toward the others, although earlier he had prided himself on being considerate. For now more than ever he had reason to hide, thoroughly coated as he was with the dust that shrouded everything in his room, flurrying about at the vaguest movement. Furthermore, threads, hairs, and scraps of leftover food were sticking to his back and his sides, for he had become much too apathetic to turn over and scour his back on the carpet as he used to do several times a day. And so, despite his present state, he had no qualms about advancing a bit across the spotless parlour floor. Nor, to be sure, did anyone take any notice of him. The family was engrossed in the violin playing. The boarders, in contrast, their hands in their trouser pockets, had initially placed themselves much too close to the sister's music stand, so they could all read the score which was bound to fluster her. As a result, half muttering with lowered heads, they soon retreated to the window where they remained, with the father eyeing them uneasily. It now truly seemed more than obvious that their hope of listening to a lovely or entertaining violin recital had been dashed, that they had had enough of the performance, and that it was only out of sheer courtesy that they were allowing themselves to be put upon in their leisure. It was especially the manner in which they all blew their cigar-smoke aloft through their mouths and noses that hinted at how fidgety they were. And yet the sister was playing so beautifully. Her face was leaning to the side, her sad, probing eyes were following the lines of notes. Gregor crawled a bit farther out, keeping his head close to the floor so that their eyes might possibly meet. Was he a beast to be so moved by music? He felt as if he were being shown the path to the unknown food he was yearning for. He was determined to creep all the way over to the sister, tug at her skirt to suggest that she take her violin and come into his room, for no one here would reward her playing as he intended to reward it. 
he wanted to keep her there and never let her out, at least not in his lifetime. For once his terrifying shape would be useful to him. He would be at all the doors of his room simultaneously, hissing at the attackers. His sister, however, should remain with him not by force, but of her own free will. She should sit next to him on the settee, leaning down to him and listening to him confide that he had been intent on sending her to the conservatory, and that if the misfortune had not interfered, he would have announced his plan to everyone last Christmas. Christmas was already past, wasn't it? Absolutely refusing to take no for an answer. After his declaration, the sister would burst into tears of emotion, and Gregor would lift himself all the way up to her shoulder and kiss her throat, which she had been keeping free of any ribbon or collar since she had first started working. Mr. Samsa, the middle gentleman called to the father, and, not wasting another word, pointed his index finger at Gregor, who was slowly edging forward. The violin broke off. The middle gentleman first smiled at his friends, shaking his head, and then looked back at Gregor. The father, instead of driving Gregor out, evidently considered it imperative first to calm the boarders, even though they were not the least bit upset, and appeared to find Gregor more entertaining than the violin playing. The father hurried over to them, and with outspread arms tried to push them into their room, while simultaneously blocking their view of Gregor with his body. They now, in fact, began to grow a bit irate though there was no telling whether it was due to the father's behavior or to their gradual realization that they had unknowingly had a neighbor like Gregor in the next room. They demanded explanations from the father, raised their arms like him, plucked at their beards, and only very slowly backed away toward their room. Meanwhile the sister had managed to overcome her bewilderment, caused by the abrupt end to her playing, and after a time of holding the violin and the bow in her slackly dangling hands and gazing at the score as if still playing, she suddenly pulled herself together, left the instrument in the mother's lap—she was still in her chair, her lungs heaving violently—and rushed into the next room, toward which the father was more and more forcefully herding the boarders. One could see the blankets and pillows in the beds flying aloft, then being neatly arranged under the sister's practiced hands. Before the gentleman ever reached the room, she had finished making up the beds and slipped out. The father seemed once again so thoroughly overcome by his obstinacy that he neglected to pay the tenants the respect nevertheless due them. He merely kept shoving until the middle gentleman, who was already in the doorway of the room, brought him to a halt by thunderously stamping his foot. "'I hereby declare,' said the middle gentleman, raising his hand and looking around for the mother and the sister as well, that in consideration of the repulsive conditions—here he abruptly spit on the floor—prevailing in this apartment and in this family, I am giving immediate notice in regard to my room. Naturally, I will not pay a single penny for the days I have resided here. On the other hand, I will give serious thought to the eventuality of pursuing some sort of claims against you, for which, believe me, excellent grounds can easily be shown. He paused and peered straight ahead as if expecting something. And indeed, his two friends promptly chimed in, saying, We are giving immediate notice, too. Thereupon he grabbed the doorknob and slammed the door with a crash. The father, groping and staggering along, collapsed into his chair. He looked as if he were stretching out for his usual evening nap, but his head, dangling as if unsupported, revealed that he was anything but asleep. All this while Gregor had been lying right where the boarders had first spotted him. His frustration at the failure of his plan, and perhaps also the feebleness caused by his persistent hunger, made it impossible for him to move. Dreading with some certainty that at any moment now he would have to bear the blame for the overall disaster, he waited. He was not even startled when the violin, sliding away from the mother's trembling fingers, plunged from her lap with a reverberating thud. "'My dear parents,' said the sister, pounding her hand on the table by way of introduction, "'things cannot go on like this. You may not realize it, but I do. 
I will not pronounce my brother's name in front of this monstrosity, and so all I will say is we must try to get rid of it. We have done everything humanly possible to look after it and put up with it. I don't believe there is anything we can be reproached for. She couldn't be more right, said the father to himself. The mother, still struggling to catch her breath, and with an insane look in her eyes, began to cough into her muffling hand. The sister hurried over to the mother and held her forehead. The father, apparently steered to more concrete thoughts by the sister's words, sat bolt upright now, toying with his attendant's cap, which lay on the table, among the boarders' leftover supper dishes. Every so often he glanced at Gregor, who kept silent. "'We've got to get rid of it,' the sister now said exclusively to the father, for the mother heard nothing through her coughing. "'It will kill the both of you. I can see it coming. People who have to work as hard as we do can't also endure this non-stop torture at home. I can't stand it any more either.' And she began sobbing so violently that her tears flowed down to the mother's face from which she wiped them with mechanical gestures. "'But, child,' said the father, with compassion and marked understanding, "'what should we do?' The sister merely shrugged her shoulders to convey the perplexity that, in contrast with her earlier self-assurance, had overcome her as she wept. "'If he understood us,' said the father, half wondering. The sister, in the thick of her weeping, wildly flapped her hand to signal that this was inconceivable. "'If he understood us,' the father repeated, closing his eyes in order to take in the sister's conviction that this was impossible, then perhaps we might come to some sort of terms with him. But as things are now, it has to go, exclaimed the sister. That's the only way, father. You simply have to try and get rid of the idea that it is Gregor. Our real misfortune is that we believed it for such a long time. Just how can that possibly be, Gregor? If that were Gregor, he would have realized long ago that human beings can't possibly live with such an animal, and he would have left of his own accord. We might have no brother then, but we could go on living and honor his memory. Instead, this animal harries us. It drives out the borders. It obviously wants to take over the whole apartment and make us sleep in the gutter. Look, father, she suddenly screamed, he's starting again. And in a panic that Gregor could not for the life of him fathom, the sister actually deserted the mother, literally thrusting away from her chair, as if she would rather sacrifice her mother than remain near Gregor, she dashed behind the father, who, made frantic only by the sister's behavior, stood up, half raising his hands to shield her. Yet Gregor never even dreamed of scaring anyone least of all his sister. He had merely started wheeling around in order to lumber back to his room, although because of his sickly condition his movements did look peculiar, for he had to execute the intricate turns by repeatedly raising his head and banging it against the floor. He paused and looked around. His good intentions seemed to have been recognized. The panic had only been momentary. Now they all gazed at him in dismal silence. The mother, stretching out her legs and pressing them together, sprawled in her chair, her eyes almost shut in exhaustion. The father and the sister sat side by side, she with her arm around his neck. Now maybe I can turn around, Gregor thought, resuming his labor. He couldn't help panting from the strain, and he also had to rest intermittently. At least no one was bullying him, and he was left to his own devices. Upon completing the turn, he headed straight back. Amazed that his room was far away, he couldn't understand how, given his feebleness, he had come this great distance almost unwittingly. But, absorbed in creeping rapidly, he scarcely noticed that no interfering word or outcry came from his family. It was only upon reaching the door that he turned his head, not all the way, for he felt his neck stiffening. Nevertheless, he did see that nothing had changed behind him, except that the sister had gotten to her feet. His final look 
grazed the mother, who was fast asleep by now. No sooner was he inside his room than the door was hastily slammed, bolted, and locked. Gregor was so terrified by the sudden racket behind him that his tiny legs buckled. It was the sister who had been in such a rush. She had been standing there waiting, and had then nimbly jumped forward before Gregor had even heard her coming. Finally she yelled to the parents while turning the key in the lock. What now? Gregor wondered, peering around in the dark. He soon discovered that he could no longer budge at all. He wasn't surprised. It even struck him as unnatural that he had ever succeeded in moving on these skinny little legs. Otherwise, he felt relatively comfortable. His entire body was aching, but it seemed to him as if the pains were gradually fading and would ultimately vanish altogether. He could barely feel the rotting apple in his back or the inflamed area around it, which were thoroughly cloaked with soft dust. He recalled his family, with tenderness and love. His conviction that he would have to disappear was, if possible, even firmer than his sister's. He lingered in this state of blank and peaceful musing until the tower clock struck three in the morning. He held on long enough to glimpse the start of the overall brightening outside the window. Then... His head involuntarily sank to the floor, and his final breath came feebly from his nostrils. When the charwoman showed up early that morning, in her haste and sheer energy, and no matter how often she had been asked not to do it, she slammed all the doors so hard that once she walked in no peaceful sleep was possible anywhere in the apartment and peeked in on Gregor as usual, she had first found nothing odd about him. Having credited him with goodness knows what brain power, she thought he was deliberately lying there so motionless, pretending to sulk. Since she happened to be clutching a long broom, she tried to tickle him from the doorway. This had no effect, and so she grew annoyed and began poking Gregor. It was only upon shoving him from his place, but meeting no resistance, that she became alert. When the true state of affairs now dawned on the charwoman, her eyes bulged in amazement, and she whistled to herself. But instead of dawdling there, she yanked the bedroom door open and hollered into the darkness, Go and look, it's croaked, it's lying, they're absolutely croaked. Mr. and Mrs. Samsa sat upright in their matrimonial bed, trying to cope with the shock caused by the charwoman. When they managed to grasp what she meant, the two of them, one on either side, hastily clambered out of bed. Mr. Samsa threw the blanket over his shoulders, while Mrs. Samsa emerged in her nightgown. That was how they entered Gregor's room. Meanwhile, the door to the parlor, where Greta had been sleeping since the arrival of the boarders, had likewise opened. She was fully dressed, and her face was pale as if she had not slept. Dead? said Mrs. Samsa, quizzically eyeing the charwoman, even though she could have gone to check everything for herself, or could have surmised it without checking. "'You bet,' said the charwoman, and by way of proof she thrust out the broom and pushed Gregor's corpse somewhat further to the side. Mrs. Samsa made as if to hold back the broom, but then let it be. "'Well,' said Mr. Samsa, "'now we can thank the Lord.' He crossed himself, and the three women imitated his example. Greta, her eyes glued to the corpse, said, Just look how skinny he was. Well, he stopped eating such a long time ago. The food came back out exactly as it went in. And indeed, Gregor's body was utterly flat and dry. They realized this only now, when it was no longer raised on its tiny legs, and nothing else diverted their eyes. "'Greta, come into our room for a bit,' said Mrs. Samsa, smiling wistfully, and Greta, not without looking back at the corpse, followed her parents into the bedroom. 
The charwoman closed the door to Gregor's room and opened the window all the way. Though it was still early morning, there was a touch of warmth in the fresh air. It was already late March, after all. The three boarders stepped out of their room and, astonished, cast about for their breakfast. They had been forgotten. "'Where's breakfast?' the middle gentleman peevishly asked the charwoman. But, putting her finger on her lips, she hastily and silently beckoned for the gentleman to come into Gregor's room. And come they did, and with their hands in the pockets of their somewhat threadbare jackets, they stood around Gregor's corpse in the now sunlit room. Next, the bedroom door opened, and Mr. Samsa, in his livery, appeared with his wife on one arm and his daughter on the other. Their eyes were all slightly tear-stained. Now and then Greta pressed her face into the father's arm. "'Leave my home at once,' Mr. Samsa told the three gentlemen, pointing at the door without releasing the women. "'What do you mean?' asked the middle gentleman, somewhat dismayed, and with a sugary smile. The two other gentlemen held their hands behind their backs, incessantly rubbing them together as if gleefully looking forward to a grand argument that they were bound to win. "'I mean exactly what I said,' replied Mr. Samsa, and with his two companions he made a beeline toward the tenant. The latter at first stood his ground, eyeing the floor as if his thoughts were being rearranged to form a new pattern in his head. "'Well, then we'll go,' he said, looking up at Mr. Samsa, as if in a sudden burst of humility he were requesting sanction even for this decision. Mr. Samsa, with bulging eyes, merely vouchsafed him a few brief nods. Thereupon the gentleman strode right into the vestibule. His two friends, who had been listening for a short while with utterly calm hands, now quite literally hopped after him as if fearing that Mr. Samsa might precede them into the vestibule and might thrust himself between them and their leader. Once in the vestibule, all three boarders pulled their hats from the coat-rack, their canes from the umbrella-stand, bowed wordlessly, and left the apartment. Impelled by a suspicion that proved to be thoroughly groundless, Mr. Samsa and the two women stepped out on the landing. As they leaned on the banister, they watched the three gentlemen marching down the long stairway, slowly but steadily vanishing on every floor in the regular twist of the staircase, and popping up again several moments later. The lower the gentlemen got, the more the Samsa family lost interest in them, and as a butcher's boy, proudly balancing a basket on his head, came toward the gentlemen and then mounted well beyond them, Mr. Samsa and the women left the banister, and as if relieved, they all returned to their apartment. They decided to spend this day resting and strolling. Not only had they earned this break from work, they absolutely needed it. And so they sat down at the table to write three letters of explanation, Mr. Samsa to his superiors, Mrs. Samsa to her customer, and Greta to her employer. As they were writing, the charwoman came in to tell them she was leaving, for her morning's work was done. The three letter-writers at first merely nodded without glancing up. It was only when she kept hovering that they looked up in annoyance. "'Well?' asked Mr. Samsa. The charwoman stood beaming in the doorway, as if she were about to announce some great windfall for the family, but would do so only if they dragged it out of her. On her hat, the small, almost erect ostrich plume, which had annoyed Mr. Samsa throughout her service here, swayed lightly in all directions. "'What can we do for you?' asked Mrs. Samsa, whom the charwoman respected the most. "'Well,' the charwoman replied, with such friendly chuckling that she had to break off, "'Listen, you don't have to worry about getting rid of that stuff in the next room. It's all been taken care of.' Mrs. Samsa and Greta huddled over their letters as if to keep writing. Mr. Samsa, aware that the charwoman was on the verge of launching into a blow-by-blow -blow description, resolutely stretched out his arm to ward her off. Not being allowed to tell her story, she suddenly remembered that she was in an awful hurry, and clearly offended she called out, "'So long, everybody!' 
She then vehemently whirled around and charged out of the apartment with a horrible slam of the door. "'She'll be dismissed to-night,' said Mr. Samsa, receiving no answer from his wife or his daughter, for the charwoman had ruffled the peace and quiet that they had barely gained. Standing up, the two women went over to the window and remained there, clasped in each other's arms. Mr. Samsa looked back from his chair and silently watched them for a while. Then he exclaimed, "'Come on, get over here, forget about the past once and for all, and show me a little consideration.' The women, promptly obeying him, hurried over, caressed him, and swiftly finished their letters. Then all three of them left the apartment together, which they had not done in months, and took the trolley out to the countryside beyond the town. The streetcar, where they were the only passengers, was flooded with warm sunshine. Leaning back comfortably in their seats, they discussed their future prospects and concluded that, upon closer perusal, these were anything but bad. For while they had never actually asked one another for any details, their jobs were all exceedingly advantageous and also promising. Naturally, the greatest immediate improvement in their situation could easily be brought about by their moving. They hoped to rent a smaller and cheaper apartment, but with a better location and altogether more practical than their current place, which had been found by Gregor. As they were conversing, both Mr. and Mrs. Samsa, upon seeing the daughter becoming more and more vivacious, realized almost in unison that lately, despite all the sorrows that had left her cheeks pale, she had blossomed into a lovely and shapely girl. Lapsing into silence and communicating almost unconsciously with their eyes, they reflected that it was high time they found a decent husband for her. And it was like a confirmation of their new dreams and good intentions that, at the end of their ride, the daughter was the first to get up, stretching her young body. This ends The Metamorphosis. And now, a collection of stories, Contemplation. For Max Broad. A sudden stroll. When you seem to have finally made up your mind to stay home for the evening, have slipped into your smoking jacket, are sitting at the illuminated table after dinner, and have gotten down to the work or the game which you habitually follow by going to bed, when the weather outside is disagreeable, causing you to stay home as a matter of course, when you have remained quietly at the table for so long that going out would be bound to provoke general astonishment, when, moreover, the staircase is already dark and the front door is locked, and when you now, despite everything, stand up in a sudden fit of uneasiness, change your jacket, instantly appear dressed for the street, declare that you have to go out, and indeed do so after a brief good-bye, depending on how fast you slam the apartment door, believing that you have annoyed someone more or less when you find yourself in the street with limbs that respond so flexibly to this unexpected freedom obtained for them, when you feel that all ability to decide is concentrated in this decision, when you realize with greater significance than usual that you have more strength than you need to easily prompt and endure the speediest change, and when you thus hurry down the long streets, then for this evening you have fully withdrawn from your family, which fades off into non-existence, while you yourself, a sharply defined black silhouette, slapping the backs of your thighs, rise to your true stature. And everything is intensified when you drop in on a friend this late in the evening to see how he's getting on.
I asked my love to take a walk, to take a walk, just a little walk, down beside where the waters flow, down by the banks of the Ohio. And only say that you'll be mine In no other's arms entwined Down beside where the waters flow Down by the banks of the Ohio I held a knife against her breast As into my arms she pressed She cried, oh Willie, don't murder me I'm not prepared for eternity and only say that you'll be mine In no other's arms entwined Down beside where the waters flow Down by the banks of the Ohio I started home between twelve and one I cried, my God, what have I done? Kill the only woman I love Because she would not be my bride and only say that you'll be mine In no other's arms entwined Down beside where the waters flow Down by the banks of the Ohio Never know, never know how 
Yeah.